The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, it is a great privilege that you, the awesome God, the Almighty, the Holy One, has called us and made a way for us to come into your presence and speak with you, to commune with you. Thank you. You are indeed awesome. And we come asking you now for your gift of even greater grace to us that now we ask that you would, you would teach us this morning and build us up, that you would make us more mature, and in particular in this way, that you would make us more, more mature, give us fuller, more complete understanding of who we are, who we are in you and what we are for. So teach us, Lord, and not just in the head and the heart. Teach us in ways that, that make us grow up, that generate in us joy and worship, that do us good like this for your honor and for the sake of witness to others who need to know you, the awesome one. So take this morning, Lord, and build it. Build it to be what you want it to be and build us in it. Thank you. We trust ourselves to you. Amen. Last week, as we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8, we considered the challenge of life here in this fallen world for us, the Christian. It creates, this world does it, it creates a constant kind of pull on us. We, we want to we hold to the the center line, we want to walk towards our promised inheritance that is certain for us, kept in heaven. But as we do, there is, there is just this drift, the world constantly pulling us to walk into its realm and to walk after it and to walk away from faithful fellowship, faithful connection with the Lord. We, we know what we're supposed to do, we know where we're supposed to head, but it's challenging, it's hard. And so we come to verses 4 to 8, and we considered there some teaching that can help encourage us and strengthen our resolve to fight that drift. God has done a great saving work for us, as we saw. He's, he's done something marvelous in that he has laid a new foundation in Christ, a new foundation for a house, a living house, a temple in which his spirit dwells. And the gathered people of God that come together, we we come and as we fight the drift and walk with him, what we find is not just other people, but we find the filling of the Spirit, life flowing into us. A good work done by God for us, good news. That's still rejected by the world all around us. That was the other half of last week as we, we thought, here's something marvelous done by God for us and yet rejected by the world. It, it sees this, this plan of God and doesn't want anything to do with it with him. It rejects him and stumbles over him because, as we saw, the world disobeys the word as they were destined to do. End of verse 8. We see that, and that, that's given to us. We're, we're told that to kind of help us face the, the tumultuous world all around us in, in an even-keeled manner, to understand what's going on. 
Understand where people are coming from and not be swayed by it or, or tempted by the pull as we're exiles here amongst the people who disagree. That's what we looked at last week. But in these same verses, there's actually more here, here and in 9 and 10, verses that follow it and are kind of, kind of tacked onto it. They're connected. There's more here that we need to consider as we look at what they say about who we are and what we are for, what we are to do. God's call on us, his plan for us is, is different than what it is for the world. And we see it kind of un, unpacked here in these verses. So we're going to look at, at 4 through 8 and also 9 and 10 again, noticing in it in particular what it says to us about our identity. And then also a little bit at the end, a shorter second point about what we're for, our purpose. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to look again, and I'm going to read again, 4 through 8, and then also 9 and 10, and then draw two observations from it. So this is 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. First Peter chapter 2. Two observations, and as I said, the first is much longer than the second. Here it is. By God's plan, Christian believers are now God's chosen, precious people. By God's plan, Christian believers are now God's chosen, precious people. You recall from last week that the main line of argument through verses 4 and 5 is the Christian coming to, continually coming to Christ, who is this chosen and precious cornerstone. And then we are built up in him. So verse 4 is, as you come to him, Christ, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. And then it talks about this, this temple, this, this house of God. Saw that last week. A house in which the Spirit dwells. And now verse 5, as we continue on, it kind of takes that same metaphor of, of temple and kind of turns it or maybe expands it a little bit and talks about who is inside the temple and what they're doing. Priests ministering in the temple. 
offering sacrifices to God. That's what priests do in the temple. And it's picked up again in verses 9 and 10, where Peter kind of expands on that. He mentions the priesthood again and talks again about us offering up to God praise and worship. So there's, there's more there, but don't overlook right off this priesthood language here in verse 5 and again repeated later. In the Old Testament, priests, those who drew near to God and came into the temple grounds and offered up the sacrifices, were drawn from just a small portion of the whole people of God, just from one tribe, the tribe of Levi. They were purified, they were, they were set apart, made holy, and then they in turn represented all of Israel in the presence of God. This, this small subset drew near to him and offered up worship to him. And the rest of the people could not do that, could not come near, were not allowed. So the rest of the people were kind of held out, and priests had special access, special connection, and responsibility. Not everyone had this in the Old Testament. But now, here, what is this saying? All of us. All New Covenant, all of us in the New Testament time, we Christian believers, were all priests now. Which means you, we all, have this privileged access and this special connection. You yourself, personally. We, we often hear this and kind of take it for granted, but we, we shouldn't. We, we should realize this is really different. You, Christian, stand holy, invited into the presence of God right now. You can come to him. You don't need me, the pastor, to do it for you because you're not allowed. You're being kept at distance. Now, of course, I will talk to God for you. I will go into God's presence on your behalf, but you don't need me is the point because you're not allowed. You're not welcomed. I'm the holy one. That would have been the old system. And that's not this one. Every one of us equally, you and me, all of us, priests right now, with Christ having opened the door, and every one of us can come into the very presence of the awesome Holy One and open our mouths and talk to Him. And He's eager to listen. This is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. One thing that, that, as I said, we often assume, others don't. And they're wrong about that. But when we get past right and wrong, do you see the privilege? God wants to talk to you. Not me for you. 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 You're a priest. You're welcomed in. And in, in you, God wants to commune directly with you. In you, his spirit dwells. From you, he, he draws out praise. He, he interacts with you personally. This is a precious piece of who you are. But we're just getting started, actually. Verses 9 and 10 have a lot more to say as Peter lays out more of our identity in, in four kind of short phrases there. Coming out of verse 8, you remember, it says, They stumble, the ones who do not believe in Christ, because they disobey the message, they disobey the word. So they, they then reject him, 
That's because they, they were destined to do so. It says at the very end of the verse, God's plan for them, as we talked about last week, and if that sounds odd to you this week, if, if that kind of sits with you a little bit strange, I, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon from last week. We'll talk more about that there. But that's coming out of the end of verse 8. They set Christ aside. They reject him as they were destined to you. But you, verse 9, big change, a different plan for you. You, Christian, experience a different sovereign work of God. And here again, we, we come right to the doctrine of sovereign election with an interesting twist this morning. He says, but you are a chosen race. Chosen, that is elected, picked by God, a chosen race. And, and obviously the election element is, is right there clear in the word chosen. We've talked about that before. But what isn't quite so clear is, is that word. What isn't quite so clear is how this phrase and the ones that follow are making a profound theological statement about two groups of people. One, on the one hand, a group of people, the, the ethnic, racially defined group of ancient Israel, ethnically, racially Jewish people, this one group, and the other group, on the other hand, those who believe in Christ, New Testament believers in Christ, what we call Christians, making a statement about both of these two groups and, and how they are related to one another. This is pretty interesting, I think. We, obviously, are not literally a race. And that's kind of part of the point. But he calls us here a chosen race. These four phrases here, beginning with that one, are all expanding on this idea of temple and priest that was in verse 4 or 5. And then it kind of goes a little bit wider as it takes all these phrases from Old Testament contexts and drops them directly in our lap and applies them to us. In their old context, they are about the, this other group, this ethnically, racially defined group. And here now, they're about us. If you look back at Isaiah 43, you find a couple of these phrases. Verses 20 and 21, speaking there in that context about ethnic Israel, God says, my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praises. That's two of these phrases, the first one and the fourth one. And then if we were to, to look at Exodus 19, God speaking through Moses to Israel at Mount Sinai as he gives out the old covenant, says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These phrases again, right there. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel, the Lord said through Moses. So, God gives his covenant there in Exodus and says, did you hear it? If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession and my nation and my people. If and then. 
And did they keep faithfully that covenant? The whole answer of the Old Testament is no. And that's why there needed to be a new one. A new covenant, better, made with one faithful son of Abraham who kept that covenant and then all who come to him and trust him are credited with his covenant keeping and filled with his spirit that we would increasingly walk in obedience to God's commands. The heart-changing spirit in the new covenant made with a new covenant people through Christ, the new cornerstone of the new temple. Peter just says that. This is, this is complicated. It's difficult to track. I know that I know it's difficult to follow here, but see this, please. Peter just says this. There's a new cornerstone laid in Zion, and this honor is for you who believe. Not for those who do not. This honor is for you who believe in Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, that is, the king's priests. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. That's you. It didn't used to be you, verse 10. You were not a people. You were a hodgepodge. I mean, you look around our room, we are a hodgepodge of people. We are not a race. We are not a group. We are a, a collection of people gathered together. We were not a people, but now we are a people. We are a chosen people, God's people. So this is, i just state the obvious here. This is hard to understand, and there are a lot of distractions in the room right now. <laughs> so I'm going to try to like simplify that and, and help us here. Old Testament promises, specifically spoken to Old Testament people, Peter just drops right on us. That's you. Something significant has changed here. That's important to see. What was, well, we're going to talk about what all those promises mean, but it's important to see that they have come now to us. And sometimes as soon as I say something like that, or as soon as a passage like this is kind of expressed and made clear, it causes some questions to pop in some people's minds. Probably not in everybody's mind. So I may be like creating a question that you're not asking, but it might be that you're asking, but what about ethnic Israel? I mean, what about Israel? Are you saying, pastors, you're talking about this passage, are you saying that God is done with them? That all of this that was about them is now transferred and said just plain, clear as day, this is you, and they're over, that God has nothing further for them, that he doesn't care about them and isn't going to do anything with them anymore. Some people kind of ask that question. It pops up in their mind. And the New Testament's answer to that is found in Romans 9, 10, 11. Some other places too, but particularly 9, 10, 11, 
Well, Paul addresses this question, and in short, his answer there is there is no future separate plan of God for ethnic Israel. No future separate plan. Or to put it differently, there are not two future plans for two peoples of God. There's one plan for one people, one chosen race, the one holy nation. Paul there talks about one tree, not two trees, one. That current tree has a massive amount of Gentiles grafted into it. But its roots are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Its roots are in the Old Testament with a whole bunch of new Gentile folks in it. But there is coming a point in time when God will move in a unique and significant revival way, a significant evangelistic wave. Who knows when? We don't know when. We don't know how. But a significant evangelistic wave will move through ethnically Jewish people and move them to see Christ Messiah is, in fact, the cornerstone. And they'll trust him. In our language, become Christians. And they get grafted back into that tree. The one plan and the one people of God. Use our terminology, they'll become Christians and come back into the promises of God and realize that verses 4 through 10 are all about them, in fact. The people who believe in Christ. See, there are not two separate plans. There is one plan for those who trust Messiah. And there is one plan for those who do not. Two plans. This passage deliberately and clearly identifies Christian believers as God's one chosen people, but it does not at all exclude Jewish people from becoming Christian believers and experiencing these verses. In fact, it is written by one such person. Peter. All that it excludes is that there are not two separate plans. The Old Testament honors are for those who believe in Christ, which means they're for you. What do they mean? What are they? We now are God's chosen race, God's kingly royal priests, his holy nation, his possession, along with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Hannah and Esther and Ruth. Together. And this gloriously fixes our, your identity. This is telling you who you are. And this is important to understand because it does not take long to, to just give an, a half-open ear to the world and everything out there will tell you who you are or will tell you to define who you are. But God tells us who we are. He begins, you are a fallen human being, a sinner. That's true. You break God's law. And once you become aware of that reality, it's pretty hard to escape it. it. It can drive in on us and it can be hard to face because 
you have an enemy that wants to press that in on you and wants to use that in part to define you. His game plan is to make non-Christians never think about being sinners, and if he could, make you think about it all the time. To make you focus on that and, and to sit under that crushing reality and to make it ring in your ears. You are a sinner. You are a failure. You are a disgrace. You are a wreck. You probably don't even really trust Christ, and why would he want to talk to you? That's not our official theology, but that presses in on us, and we've got somebody who is deeply vested in pressing that in on you. So what's the answer to that haranguing of your heart? Not, ironically, not. Don't talk to me like that. Don't tell me that. I want to read those passages. The best answer to that is a full-hearted yes, but. Yes, that's true. But you know what else is true? See how that disarms this? When anybody says something of you and you try to deny it, and re- if you can just embrace it and say, yep, that's true. But you know what else is true? I am one who has received mercy. Verse 10. There is nothing in you that is not covered by mercy now. Nothing. So you, you can look at all, all kinds of attack and say, yeah, sure, yes, uh-huh, yep. But... That used to be a problem when I was not a recipient of mercy, but now I am one who has received mercy, and I stand in grace, and there is over me a great cover that means that there is no condemnation against me that will stand. Say it if you want. It won't stand. You are clean and pure in God's eyes, a holy priest welcomed into his presence, invited in, commanded to come in, actually. He wants to see you so much he told you to come. He doesn't just say, come if you feel like it. He says, come, I want to see you. Someone else says, don't come. He says, please do. Bring your sin. I don't care. I'm bigger than that. He cares about sin, yeah. But he doesn't because he's already dealt with it. Come, you're a priest. I welcome you in. I want to hear from you. I want to talk with you. Why is that? Because God chose to love you and make you one of his people. You are a chosen person part of a chosen people. And so in this world, you may be rejected with disdain, but you are not an orphan. You may be a failure in some particular field, in some particular relationship in this world. Yeah, that may be. But you are part of the royal household in the eyes of God. You may be a nobody. You may be in exile. You may be disenfranchised. You may be hated. But in fact, by God, he just says, well, they did that to Jesus too. What are they else, what else are they going to do to you? Come, precious, chosen, beloved one. I welcome you. I receive you. I want you. 
It may be set outside of all of the culture's power centers. We may find that culturally speaking, we become chased, we become kicked out, we become excluded. And in the throne room of heaven, we're the only people who are welcomed. Which matters? You can't hold public office in some countries if you're a Christian. They can't hold public office in heaven. Which matters? This, it, it might well be that nobody on your block cares about you, that everybody ignores you, that their kids aren't allowed to play with your kids. That may well be. That may come. But God says, I put out my hand and I, I passed over them and I picked you and I drew you near and I welcome you into my presence. You are chosen and precious and loved and desired and forgiven and empowered and owned and cared for and provided for. You have a heritage and a home. It isn't this one. You have a status and a land. Not here. You wear a crown and a robe. Not that anyone can see it with human eyes. Paul's really clear about who he is as he invites us to follow after him. I'm the scum of the earth. I am despised and rejected like someone else I know. Come follow me. And you've got to figure out which one of these identities is dominant in my mind. Because if the, if the scum of the earth, and if the despised and rejected, and if the I'm homeless and I'm excluded and my kids are excluded, if that's the dominant one, then you're going to be drawn by the drift, by the pull, to figure out how do I fix this so I can improve my lot in life. But if this other one, chosen race, holy nation, royal priesthood. God, if this other one is dominant, then you'll say like, I can't improve upon this. And who wants that stuff? There are two parallel defining roads here. Which one do you walk? This should come to us as a little bit of a of, of, a, of a confronting reality, but it shouldn't be a condemning reality. It should be a, oh yeah, a hope-giving reality. Not just don't go that way, but you don't have to go that way. You've got enough. You're full. You're safe. You're covered. You're forgiven. You're blessed. You're His. All that because Christ was shamed in your place. You were honored because he wasn't. By people on earth and in fact even in a moment by his father. This, this is the reality of, of the gospel that God sent his son not to first be honored but to first be shamed. That happened 
People rejected him, and his father even turned his face away as he was made sin on our behalf. He did not receive mercy. He received wrath. He's the royal son who was cast out. He's the high priest who was denied access. He's the stone who was broken. So that all that can be reversed for you. And it has been reversed for you. We are his. We are the apple of his eye, the bride that he sought out, one, and is taking home with him. That's who you are. You are a nation also among all the other nations. You think about this a, a little bit beyond, just take a half a step back from the personal to the, the kind of corporate. We are a nation among all the other nations. In a real sense, we are exiles here because we don't actually have a home here. We are citizens, many of us of the United States, but not ultimately of the United States. And it's important that we keep this straight. Put it this way, like, we have, you're Christian, you have more important things in common with the Christian from Afghanistan, from Azerbaijan, wherever, than you do with the other people on your block. You may not be able to understand what they're talking about. You may not connect with them because of language or culture. You, there may be this, this disconnect when you meet them on the street, and you may really like sync up really well with your next-door neighbor, but you have more that is more important you have more in common with the Christian from over there than you do with the one right next door to you, the non-Christian right next door to you. That should affect how we think about national and international events. I, I'm thankful that we prayed this morning about Afghan pastors, Afghan Christians, it should affect how you think about what do I do with people over there, out there? They're my brothers and sisters. They're the people that I'm actually in one family with. I'm part of their race, their nation. Their race. That's interesting. We're a race amongst the races which I think is particularly important for us to think about now, this racially charged environment that we live in. Our racial identity transcends black, white, Asian, Latino, etc. Those are all, they are all particular heritages with histories that need to be thought about carefully. Yes, I, I grant that. However, they are not ultimate. We are a Christian race, which is weird to say, but means that if you're, if you're black and I'm white and we're both Christians, we are of the same race, we have the same blood in our veins, 
and that is more important and more lasting. His family name defines the both of us. We're different, and we have more in common with each other than we do with the other people of our same skin color or same ethnic background. The ramifications of all, of all those, those two points are, are large and complicated. I really couldn't begin to say what that means for policy X or decision Y other than that it does matter. And that, ironically, the closer we get to people from other cultures, you begin to experience this and you realize we actually do have something the world cannot make work. We have the ability to make peace between nations and between races. That's really interesting. You find that when you get close to Christians of other, of other cultural backgrounds. I can't begin to say what all, what all the decisions we, we should make or how we should think about things other than just to note there is great personal individual identity un unpacked in these phrases, and there's also some corporate identity. We are a chosen race. We are a holy nation. God's people amongst all the peoples. More important than being white or American. I belong to Jesus. And that should leave us, as we come to the end of it, that should leave us feeling some sense of profound rest. In a world that is full of tumult and is constantly trying to pull us, if you can look at these two paths and say, I am his. By his choice. That's good news. And it has a purpose behind it, which is the second observation. We are God's people for God's praise. We are God's people for God's praise. As I said, this is much shorter, but it comes out of verses 5 and then again out of the end of verse 9. Or the people who are described with this temple and priesthood. And what do the priests do? Well, in the Old Testament, they would, they would minister in the sanctuary and around the altar, offering up sacrifices of praise. And that all now has changed, of course. The last sacrifice has been offered. But what we do now is we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Sacrifices that are in and by the Spirit. He gives us, the Spirit of God gives us power to offer to God something from us that is pleasing to him. And he gives us the power to do that, and Christ gives us the access. And so this is a Trinitarian phrase here. By the Spirit, through Christ, to God. We can because of the power of the Spirit. We can because of the access given us by Christ. Praise God. Offer him sacrifices. So, what do we do with that? What, what does that mean? Well, verse 9 expands a little bit. We are his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are priests, a people for proclaiming. Proclaiming what? The excellencies of God. So what our lives are about, what he's saying here is, what our lives are for is in one way or another to declare God is excellent. God is awesome. God is wonderful and marvelous. How do we do that? One clear and immediate way is, is we do that with our mouths deliberately as we gather here in worship. Part of what we do when we gather in worship together, whether it be in Sunday morning setting or maybe in a small group setting or with another person as you sit and you pray or you read your Bible and you out loud speak of or pray about or sing about the excellencies of God, part of what we're doing there is purely to give God glory, purely to praise him. It, it is not, part of it is not intended to be helpful to me. It's easy for us to get off on this right away think about, well, how does it help me? I don't actually enjoy singing that much, so I'll skip that part. He didn't ask if you enjoy it. Do you realize that? He didn't say, do you enjoy declaring that I am excellent? If that helps you, here's an opportunity. Do you get that? He is God and is excellent and is worthy of being praised and has told us that is right. Any one of us if you have kids or grandkids or you've been around and entrusted with the care of kids, you got a kid in tow and somebody says, here, and gives them something. A present on Christmas morning. A sucker at the bank. What comes out of your mouth? Say thank you. Say thank you. Because that's appropriate. Not because youngster likes it because we recognize there's, there's a relationship here that one has blessed you of his or her own choice and your appropriate response is to say that was nice of you, thank you little things like suckers at the bank gifts on Christmas morning we stand beneath the glorious God who called us out of darkness into light who made us a people who bestowed on us mercy not because there was anything in us worthy of that, but because he, of his own choice, decided to. And we say, thank you. You are awesome. Because it's appropriate and he is worthy of being praised, worthy of having his excellencies declared. That he 
he may hear them and be honored by them and that all the spiritual forces of evil that watch in the heavenlies and all of the angelic beings that watch in the heavenlies may hear it and may see, yes, that is right, he is awesome. What he has done to this one, he has saved this enemy, this one who was wandering in darkness, not looking for him, wandering in darkness, running. He grabbed it, that person, redeemed that person, made that person to understand and to walk in and live in marvelous light. He did that. He is awesome. And they get that from watching us interact with him. He is worthy of being praised. What comes out of our mouths in a setting like this, what comes out of our mouths as we, as we sit over our Bibles by ourselves or with others as we pray, should be the declaration of his excellencies. That's why he made us. so that you may proclaim his excellencies. That he may be honored, that the angelic and demonic forces may hear it and may see and praise him, and that others around us in the world may see it also. It does them good. It shows them who is excellent, not just as we worship in, in, in our our sanctuary or as we study our Bibles and pray, but something that we might call evangelistic proclamation. As we proclaim out loud to others, you know what's excellent. Not what you're drawn to, him. We do that with our words and with our deeds. And actually, that's, that's not stated explicitly here, but that's where much of the rest of the book goes. If you were to glance ahead, you'd see that's where much of the rest of the book goes, how we interact in a way that is winsome. We'll talk about that more in the future. But we may end with thinking, there should be something here in the proclaiming of his excellencies even to ourselves. Because that's what kind of wraps it all back, back together. We are, we are inclined, we are drawn, we are pulled to wander after the world. But as we preach his excellencies to ourselves, we are reminded about darkness and light, about grace and mercy, about our identities. And strengthened to be able to face sorrows and troubles that will come to us, as chapter 1 mentioned, that will grieve us now, but as we preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of who we are and who he is for us, we can be ever rejoicing amidst the sorrows. Can we... <laughs> God is good. Declare that back to him and to yourself. It will help you walk with him and enjoy him, bringing him glory and doing you great good. Let me pray. Lord, have mercy on us each day. We are objects of your mercy. You are kind and good. 
meet us again today. Remind us of that, of who you have made us to be, of who we are, and draw out from us praise. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.